Chapter Sixteen of the Tavern Knight. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ted Garvin. The Tavern Knight by Raphael Sabatini. Chapter Sixteen: The Reckoning. Sir Crispin had heard naught of what was being said as he entered the room wherein the brothers plotted against him, and he little dreamt that his identity was discovered. He had but hastened to perform that which, under ordinary circumstances, would have been a natural enough duty toward the master of the house. He had been actuated also by an impatience again to behold this Joseph Ashburn, the man who had dealt him that murderous sword-thrust eighteen years ago. He watched him attentively, and gathering from his scrutiny that here was a dangerous, subtle man, different, indeed, to his dull-witted brother, he had determined to act at once and so when he appeared in the hall at supper-time he came armed and booted and equipped as for a journey joseph was standing alone by the huge fireplace his face to the burning logs and his foot resting upon one of the andirons gregory and his daughter were talking together in the embrasure of a window by the other window across the hall stood kenneth alone and disconsolate gazing out at the drizzling rain that had begun to fall as Galliard descended, Joseph turned his head, and his eyebrows shot up and wrinkled his forehead at beholding the knight's equipment. "'How is this, Sir Crispin?' said he. "'You are going on a journey?' "'Too long already have I imposed myself upon the hospitality of Castle Marley,' Crispin answered politely as he came and stood before the blazing logs. "'Tonight, Mr. Ashburn, I go hence.' A curious expression flitted across Joseph's face. The next moment, his brows still knit as he sought to fathom his sudden action, he was muttering the formal regrets that courtesy dictated. But Crispin had remarked that singular expression on Joseph's face, fleeting though it had been, and it flashed across his mind that Joseph knew him. And as he moved away toward Cynthia and her father, he thanked heaven that he had taken such measures as he had thought wise and prudent for the carrying out of his resolve. Following him with a glance, Joseph asked himself whether Crispin had discovered that he was recognized, and had determined to withdraw, leaving his vengeance for another and more propitious season. In answer, little knowing the measure of the man he dealt with, he told himself it must be so, and having arrived at that conclusion, he there and then determined that Crispin should not depart free to return and plague them when he listed. Since Galliard shrank from forcing matters to an issue, he himself would do it that very night and thereby settle for all time his business. And so, ere he sat down to sup, Joseph looked to it that his sword lay at hand behind his chair at the table-head. The meal was a quiet one enough. Kenneth was sulking neath the fresh ill-usage, as he deemed it, that he had suffered at Cynthia's hands. Cynthia, in her turn, was grave and silent. That story of Sir Crispin's sufferings gave her much to think of, as did also his departure and more than once did Galliard find her eyes fixed upon him with a look half of pity, half of some other feeling that he was at a loss to interpret. Gregory's big voice was little heard. The sinister glitter in his brother's eye made him apprehensive and ill at ease. For him the hour was indeed in travail, and liked to bring forth strange doings, but not half so much as it was for Crispin and Joseph, each bent on forcing matters to a head ere they quitted that board and yet but for these two the meal would have passed off in dismal silence. Joseph was at pains to keep suspicion from his guest, and with that intent he talked gaily of this and that, told of slight matters that had befallen him on his recent journey, 
and of the doings that in london he had witnessed investing each trifling incident with a garb of wit that rendered it entertaining and galliard actuated by the same motives grew reminiscent whenever joseph paused and let his nimble tongue even nimblest at a table amuse those present or seemed to amuse them by a score of drolleries he drank deeply too and this joseph observed with satisfaction but here again he misjudged his man kenneth who ate but little seemed also to have developed an enormous thirst and crispin grew at length alarmed at that ever empty goblet so often filled he would have need of kenneth ere the hour was out and he rightly feared that did matters thus continue the lad's aid was not to be reckoned with had kenneth sat beside him he would have whispered a word of restraint in his ear but the lad was on the other side of the board at one moment crispin fancied that a look of intelligence passed from joseph to gregory and when presently gregory set himself to, to ply both him and the boy with wine his suspicions became certainties and he grew watchful and wary anon cynthia rose upon the instant galliard was also on his feet he escorted her to the foot of the staircase and there permit me mr cynthia said he to take my leave of you in an hour or so i shall be riding away from castle marley her eyes sought the ground and had he been observant of her he might have noticed that she paled slightly fare you well sir said she in a low voice may happiness attend you madam i thank you fare you well he bowed low she dropped him a slight curtsey and ascended the stairs once as she reached the gallery above she turned he had resumed his seat at table and was in the act of filling his glass the servants had withdrawn and for half an hour thereafter they sat on sipping their wine and making conversation while crispin drained bumper after bumper and grew ever instant more more boisterous until at length his boisterousness passed into incoherence his eyelids drooped heavily and his chin kept ever and anon sinking forward on to his breast kenneth flushed with wine yet master of his wits watched him with contempt this was the man cynthia preferred to him contempt was there also in joseph ashburn's eye mingled with satisfaction he had not looked to find the task so easy at length he deemed the season ripe my brother tells me that you were once acquainted with roland marley said he ay he answered thickly i knew the dog a merry reckless soul damn me twas his recklessness killed him poor devil that in your hand mr ashburn so the story goes what story what story echoed crispin the story that i heard do you say i lie and swaying in his chair he sought to assume an air of defiance joseph laughed in a fashion that made kenneth's blood run cold why no i don't deny it it was in fair fight he fell moreover he brought the duel upon himself crispin spoke no word in answer but rose unsteadily to his feet so unsteadily that his chair was overset and fell with a crash behind him for a moment he surveyed it with a drunken leer then went lurching across the hall toward the door that led to the servants quarters the three men sat on watching his antics with contempt curiosity and amusement they saw him gain the heavy oaken door and close it they heard the bolts rasp as he shot them home and the lock click and they saw him withdraw the key and slip it into his pocket the cold smile still played round joseph's lips as crispin turned to face them again and on joseph's lips did that same smile freeze as he saw him standing there erect and firm his drunkenness all vanished and his eyes keen and fierce as he heard the ring of his metallic voice you lie joseph ashburn it was no fair fight 
It was no duel. It was a foul, murderous stroke you dealt him in the back, thinking to butcher him as you butchered his wife and his babe. But there is a God, Master Ashburn, he went on in an ever-swelling voice, and I lived. Like a salamander I came through the flames in which you sought to destroy all trace of your vile deed. I lived, and I, Crispin Galliard, the debauched tavern knight that was once Roland Marley, am here to demand a reckoning. The very incarnation was he, then, of an avenger, as he stood towering before them, his grim face livid with the passion into which he had lashed himself as he spoke, his blazing eyes watching them in that cunning, half-closed way that was his when his mood was dangerous. And yet the only one that quailed was Kenneth, his ally, upon whom comprehension burst with stunning swiftness. Joseph recovered quickly from the surprise of Crispin's suddenly reassumed sobriety. He understood the trick that Galliard had played upon them, so that he might cut off their retreat in the only direction in which they might have sought assistance, and he cursed himself for not having foreseen it. Still anxiety he felt none. His sword was to his hand, and Gregory was armed. At the very worst they were two calm and able men opposed to a half-intoxicated boy, and a man whom fury, he thought, must strip of half his power. Probably, indeed, the lad would side with them, despite his plighted word. Again he had but to raise his voice, and, though the door that Crispin had fastened was a stout one, he never doubted but that his call would penetrate it and bring his servants to his rescue. And so, a smile of cynical unconcern returned to his lips, and his answer was delivered in a cold, incisive voice. The reckoning you have come to demand shall be paid you, sir. Ray Kelly Galliard is the hero of many a reckless deed, but my judgment is much at fault if this prove not his crowning recklessness and his last one. Gad's wounds, sir, are you mad to come hither single-handed to beard the lion in his den? Rather the cur in his kennel, sneered Crispin back. Blood and wounds, Master Joseph, think you to affright me with words? Still Joseph smiled, deeming himself master of the situation. Were help needed, the raising of my voice would bring it me. But it is not. We are three to one. You reckon wrongly. Mr. Stewart belongs to me tonight bound by an oath that would damn his soul to break, to help me when and where I may call upon him, and I call upon him now. Kenneth, draw your sword. Kenneth groaned as he stood by, clasping and unclasping his hands. God's curse on you, he burst out. You have tricked me. You have cheated me. Bear your oath in mine, was the cold answer. If you deem yourself wronged by me, hereafter you shall have what satisfaction you demand. But first fulfill me what you have sworn. Out with your blade, man. Still Kenneth hesitated, and but for Gregory's rash action at that critical juncture, it is possible that he would have elected to break his plighted word. But Gregory, fearing that he might determine otherwise, resolved there and then to remove the chance of it. Whipping out his sword, he made a vicious pass at the lad's breast. Kenneth avoided it by leaping backwards, but in an instant Gregory had sprung after him, and seeing himself thus beset, Kenneth was forced to draw that he might protect himself. They stood in the space between the table and that part of the hall that abutted onto the terrace. Opposite to them, by the door which he had closed, stood Crispin. At the table head, Joseph still sat cool, self-contained, even amused. He realized the rashness of Gregory's attack upon one who might yet have been won over to their side, but he never doubted that a few passes would dispose of the lad's opposition, and he sought not to interfere. Then he saw Crispin advancing toward him slowly, his rapier naked in his hand, and he was forced to look to himself. He caught at the sword that stood behind him, and leaping to his feet he sprang forward to meet his grim antagonist. Gathered's eyes flashed out a look of joy. He raised his rapier, and their blades met. 
To the clash of their meeting came an echoing clash from beyond the table. Hold, sir! Kenneth had cried, as Gregory bore down upon him. But Gregory's answer had been a lunge, which the boy had been forced to parry. Taking that crossing of blades for a sign of opposition, Gregory thrust again more viciously. Kenneth parried narrowly, his blade pointing straight at his aggressor. He saw the opening, and both instinct and the desire to repel Gregory's onslaught drew him into attempting a riposte, which drove Gregory back until his shoulders touched the panels of the wall. Simultaneously the boy's foot struck the back of the chair which in rising Crispin had overset, and he stumbled. How it happened he scarcely knew, but as he hurled forward his blade slid along his opponent's, and entering Gregory's right shoulder pinned him to the waistcoat. Joseph heard the tinkle of a falling blade, and assumed it to be Kenneth's. For the rest, he was just then too busy to dare withdraw for a second his eyes from Crispin's. Until that hour, Joseph Ashburn had accounted himself something of a swordsman, and more than a match for most masters of the weapon. But in Crispin he found a fencer of a quality such as he had never yet encountered. Every feint, every bot in his catalogue had he paraded in quick succession, yet ever with the same result. His point was foiled and put aside with ease. Desperately he fought now, darting that point of his hither and thither in and out, whenever the slightest opening offered, yet ever did it meet the gentle averting pressure of Crispin's blade. He fought on and marveled as the seconds went by that Gregory came not to his aid. Then the sickening thought that perhaps Gregory was overcome occurred to him. In such a case he must reckon upon himself alone. He cursed the overconfidence that had led him into that ever-fatal error of underestimating his adversary. He might have known that one who had acquired Sir Crispin's fame was no ordinary man, but one accustomed to face great odds and master them. He might call for help. He marveled as the thought occurred to him that the clatter of their blades had not drawn his servants from their quarters. Fencing still, he raised his voice. Ho there, John, Stephen! Spare your breath, growled the knight. I dare say you'll need have need of it. None will hear you, call as you will. I gave your four henchmen a flagon of wine wherein to drink to my safe journey hence. They have emptied it ere this, I make no doubt, and a single glass of it would set the hardest toper asleep for the round of the clock. An oath was Joseph's only answer. A curse it was upon his own folly and assurance. A little while ago he had thought to have drawn so tight a net about this ruler, and here was he now taken in its very toils, well nigh exhausted and in his enemy's power. It occurred to him, then, that Crispin stayed his hand, that he fenced only on the defensive and he wondered what might his motive be. He realized that he was mastered, and that at any moment Gallard might send home his blade. He was bathed from head to foot in a sweat that was once of exertion and despair. A frenzy seized him. Might he not yet turn to advantage his hesitancy of Crispin's to strike the final blow? He braced himself for a supreme effort, and turning his wrist from a simulated thrust in the first position, he doubled, and stretching out, lunged vigorously in court. As he lengthened his arm in the stroke, there came a sudden twitch at his wrist. The weapon was twisted from his grasp, and he stood disarmed at Crispin's mercy. A gurgling cry broke despite him from his lips, and his eyes grew wide in a sickly terror as they encountered the knight's sinister glance. Not three paces behind him was the wall, and upon it, within the hand's easy reach, hung many a trophied weapon that might have served him then. But the fascination of fear was upon him, benumbing his wits and paralyzing his limbs with the thought that the next pulsation of his tumultuous heart would be, prove its last. The calm, unflinching courage that had been Joseph's only virtue was shattered, 
and his iron will that had unscrupulously held hitherto his very conscience in bondage was turned to water now that he stood face to face with death eons of time it seemed to him were sped since the sword was wrenched from his hand and still the stroke he waited came not still crispin stood sinister and silent before him watching him with magnetic fascinating eyes as the snake watches the bird eyes from which joseph could not withdraw his own and yet before which it seemed to him that he quaked and shriveled the candles were burning low in their sconces and the corners of that ample gloomy hall were filled with mysterious shadows that formed a setting well attuned to the grim picture made by those two figures the one towering stern and vengeful the other crouching palsied and livid beyond the table and with the wounded gregory lying unconscious and bleeding at his feet stood kenneth looking on in silence in wonder and in some horror too to him also as he watched the seconds seemed minutes from the time when crispin had disarmed his opponent until with a laugh short and sudden as a stab he dropped his sword and caught his victim by the throat however fierce the passion that had actuated crispin it had been held hitherto in strong subjection but now at last it suddenly welled up and mastered him causing him to cast all restraint to the winds to abandon reason and to give way to the lust of rage that rendered ungovernable his mood like a burst of flame from embers that have been smouldering was the upleaping of his madness transfiguring his face and transforming his whole being a new unconquerable strength possessed him his pulses throbbed swiftly and madly with the quickened coursing of his blood and his soul was filled with the cruel elation that attends a lust about to be indulged the elation of the beast about to rend its prey he was pervaded by the desire to wreak slowly and with his hands the destruction of his broken enemy to have passed his sword through him would have been too swiftly done the man would have died and crispin would have known nothing of his sufferings but to take him thus by the throat slowly to choke the life's breath out of him to feel his desperate writhing struggles to be conscious of every agonized twitch of his sinews to watch the purpling face the swelling veins the protruding eyes filled with the dumb horror of his agony to hold him thus each second becoming a distinct appreciable division of time and thus to take what payment he could for all the blighted years that lay behind him this he felt would be something like revenge meanwhile the shock of surprise at the unlooked-for movement had awakened again the man in joseph for a second even hope knocked at his heart he was sinewy and active and perchance he might yet make galliard repent that he had discarded his rapier the knight's reason for doing so he thought he had in crispin's contemptuous words good steel were too great an honor for you mr ashburn and as he spoke his lean nervous fingers tightened about joseph's throat in a grip that crushed the breath from him and with it the newborn hope of proving master in his fresh combat he had not reckoned with this galley weaned strength of crispin's a strength that was a revelation to joseph as he felt himself almost lifted from the ground and swung this way and that like a babe in the hands of a grown man vain were his struggles his strength ebbed fast the blood held over long in his head was already obscuring his vision when at last the grip relaxed and his breathing was freed as his sight cleared again he found himself back in his chair at the table head and behind him sir crispin his left hand resting upon the board his right grasping once more the sword and his eyes bent mockingly and evilly upon his victim kenneth looking on could not repress a shudder he had known crispin for a tempestuous man quickly moved to wrath and he had oftentimes seen anger make terrible his face and glance but never had he seen aught in him to rival this present frenzy 
it rendered satanical the baleful glance of his eyes and the awful smile of hate and mockery with which he gazed at last upon the helpless quarry that he had waited eighteen years to bring to earth i would said crispin in a harsh deliberate voice that you had a score of lives master joseph as it is i have done what i could two agonies have you undergone already and i am inclined to mercy the end is at hand if you have prayers to say say them master ashburn though i doubt me it will be wasted breath you are overripe for hell you mean to kill me he gasped growing yet a shade more livid does the suspicion of it but occur to you laughed crispin and yet twice already have i given you a foretaste of death think you i but jested joseph's teeth clicked together in a snap of determination that sneer of crispin's acted upon him as a blow but as a blow that arouses the desire to retaliate rather than lays low he braced himself for fresh resistance not of action for that he realized was futile but of argument it is murder that you do he cried no it is justice it has been long on the way but it has come at last bethink you mr merrily call me not by that name cried the other harshly fearfully i have not borne it these eighteen years and thanks to what you have made me it is not meet that i should bear it now there was a pause then joseph spoke again with great calm and earnestness bethink you sir crispin of what you are about to do it can benefit you in naught. Oz life, think you it cannot? Think you it might benefit me not to see you earn at last your reward? You may have dearly to pay for what at best must prove a fleeting satisfaction. Not a fleeting one, Joseph, he laughed, but one the memory of which shall send me rejoicing through what years or days of life be left me, a satisfaction that for eighteen years I have been waiting to experience, though the moment after it be mine find me stark and cold sir crispin you are in enmity with the parliament an outlaw almost i have some influence much influence by exerting it have done sir cried crispin angrily you talk in vain what to me is life or aught that life can give if i have so long endured the burden of it it has been so that i might draw from it this hour do you think there is any bribe you could offer would turn me from my purpose a groan from gregory who was regaining consciousness drew his attention aside Trust him up, Kenneth, he commanded, pointing to the recumbent figure. How? Do you hesitate? Now, as God lives, I'll be obeyed, or you shall have an unpleasant reminder of the oath you swore me. With a look of loathing, the lad dropped on his knees to do as he was bidden. Then of a sudden, I have not the means, he announced. Fool, does he not wear a sword belt and a sash? Come, attend to it. Why do you force me to do this? The lad still protested passionately you have tricked and cheated me yet i have kept my oath and rendered you the assistance you required they are in your power now can you not do the rest yourself on my soul master stuart i am over patient with you are we to wrangle at every step before you'll take it i will have your assistance through this matter as you swore to give it come trust me that fellow and have done with words his fierceness overthrew the boy's outburst of resistance kenneth had wit enough to see that his mood was not one to brook much opposition and so with an oath and a groan he went to work to pinion gregory then joseph spoke again weigh well this act of yours sir crispin he cried you are still young much of life lies yet before you do not wantonly destroy it by a neck that cannot repair the past but it can avenge it joseph as for my life you destroyed it years ago the future has naught to offer me the present has this and he drew back his sword to strike end of chapter sixteen